Uh, wait a minute, yeah, that's probably... Hi, folks. Um, Dan Spanger here with uh, Dr. Mark Draper. Um, this is part of our series on uh, the crisis of the Republic, and we're not, not, we're not picking topics that necessarily hold together, really. We're looking at all the different aspects of what it means to be in the Republic. And yeah. I think what Mark and I are finding out, and Mark, you can correct me if I'm wrong, is that the idea of the Republic is not as well understood Although we're all living in one, we just don't often know what it means to live in one. And the idea that a republic historically is a, sort of a rare thing. And, um, and so it, it requires attention and caution. We've got to know what it is and how it works and how to function in it. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, we're always ending these conversations on, on how to negotiate and navigate that as a Christian. So, so today the topic may not sound like it connects to our previous conversations, but it, it is intimately tied, and that is the idea of free speech. And we're hearing a lot of this, uh, and I know Mark and I both in our, in our fields of study um, have looked at the way this concept has morphed and changed over time um, around abolition talk and civil war, slavery, and then in the 20th century, things like communism, um, and now a whole range of issues associated with whether we can speak freely. Um, so it's a, it's a complicated topic, and we're going to try as best we can today to frame some key concepts about what it is generally, how it serves the republic, how it's changed over time. So let me, let me ask you, Dr. Draper, to get it started. What, how, how important is this idea to, of free speech to the survival and character of the republic? Is it something we need to be talking about? Can't we yeah. just let this go? Well, I, I think, I think uh, right now this, this conversation gets phrased, and very rarely do you hear people talking in just the popular about my free speech, mm. right? But we do hear this concept, cancel culture. Yeah. That's what we hear a lot now. And it's, it's and we see it on the right and we see it on the left. We see it on college campuses. We, we, we see it all over the place. Uh, people getting disinvited to speak at a college campus. Um, again, from right and the left. And so if that happens and we can't have open dialogue and now we're at this point where we can't have open dialogue because who's going to be hurt, yeah. uh, who it's going to offend, uh, go back to the book, uh, The Coddling of the American Mind, yeah. which we've talked about. Um, and so that's where that gets me concerned, where we don't have a place where we can have free dialogue. And, and to me, a college campus is the best place yeah. for this, right? This is what they're for, right? right. Especially liberal arts. <laughs> right. Right? Uh, I'm supposed, you know, if I take a liberal arts program and I'm not offended at least by something, <laughs> I, I did their program. program yeah. uh, and we say the same thing about the library. If you go to a library and you're not offended at least by one of the books in the building, <laughs> we didn't do a good job collecting. <laughs> and so, so that that's where I, I it bothers me. And then okay, why does it bother me? It really bothers me about the state of the republic and, and mm. what the value is of free speech and ideas mm. and so what that does. The other reason that this has been kind of chewing at me is on one hand, we've got the cancel culture. Yeah. On the other hand, we just have the wild, wild west of information with conspiracy theories and, and the Internet and right. social media has changed things. So yeah. it's. No longer are people, uh, you know, when we teach about the 1960s, we tell everyone's watching the Vietnam War at dinner time. Well, they're watching Walter Cronkite, right? right? right. One source uh, for truth. Exactly, Cronkite. exactly. And that's the way it is. That's right. <laughs> so, that's right. But, but now there's multiple voices, yeah. right? And, and people can just kind of choose, well, I get my news from yeah. here. Or I get my... And, and even, even our news sources aren't necessarily news sources the way they are. Mm -hmm. um, when you listen to cable news, it, it, it feels very different and sounds very different from the BBC, yeah, where it yeah. seems like they're actually reporting on stories, yeah. where a lot of our cable news really is about a dialogue of like-minded people talking about right. stuff I'm interested in. Right. 
or I turn it off when I go to another one. Um, so again, this all becomes question, is this healthy for the Republic? And I think what we're seeing, particularly doing this talk a couple days after the election and the results still coming in, where we're having, re we're having uh, elections being decided by like tenths of a point, yeah. right? Yeah. It's 49.8 to 49.6. Right. I mean, that is, that really shows a divide. Right. So that, that's where it's gotten me thinking about this conversation yeah. is regards to the Republic. Is this healthy? Is this safe? So what, what I would ask you, Dr. Spander, as the as our intellectual historian <laughs> here, um, you know, I like to get my hands in the ground in the dirt and the social history. Um, I like to stay above the dirt. Exactly. Uh, what is the idea of freedom of speech with a Republic? I mean, how, how does how can we today understand what the founders thought about it? how they valued it as far as the health of a republic. And, and I think we can even go back further into, you know, you're teaching a class, you're teaching a class right now on ancient Rome and Greece yeah, yeah. And, and how they understood these concepts. Yeah. Um, so what is the value? Because maybe, maybe I'm just being paranoid. <laughs> maybe we don't have a problem at all. You, maybe you need to talk me off the ledge and say, Mark, no, this is just how freedom of speech works. <laughs> well, it does, right? I mean, I think if you're going to extend the framework back that far, one of the things you look at when you move out of monarchic cultures, let's say you do so into classical Greece out of the Mycenaean period, is that as soon as you have democracy of any brand or sort, citizenship generally speaking, rhetoric replaces the sword immediately because now you've got to convince the people to make a decision and so you can't trust them to their, to their wishes, you've got to convince them. But then what, that doesn't actually solve as many problems as it creates because now you shift the, the people in power from the ones with the biggest muscles to the ones with the sharpest tongue, right, right? Cicero right. and Catalan conspiracy, executing people without trials. Um, Pericles dragging Athens into war, um, you know, um, basically with, with his silver tongue. So, but, and then, and then in the modern Republic too, it's, you're right, it's not gone anywhere. And I can see the way you're talking, you're right, even in the Republic as it is now, it's almost one of these corollaries. If you have a Republic, right, speech is going to be weaponized. Mm. Well, well, and, and maybe not weaponized, politicized. And I don't mean that there's one side or the other, but I mean, it's the political weapon of the day. Yeah. Um, and I think that what the, and, and I, I want to go back to something else you said there, which I think is really important. And that is that the way we view free speech is very much about the intellectual framework we come yeah. to it with. So you make a good point in that the founders, I think, and, and I was talking before about the Peter Zenger case, which I think in American intellectual history is so important, uh, 1735, where um, the idea of free speech is a necessary framework, it's a necessary context to arrive at truth. And what, what I mean by that is that, the, and you'd said before, probably at this period of time, there's a sense that there is truth. Uh, everyone knows it's there. We just don't know. We can't agree on what it is. So you're saying at the founding of the of the of the republic, there is this a sense of objective truth. We hold these truths to be right, self-evident. Self right, right, right. There's an objective right. truth. It comes out of the enlightenment. Right. We can find it, and in fact, well, we can even debate about right. it. Right. Well, he, okay. Right. So here's the point: objective truth is the thing we haven't arrived at yet. We know it's there. Yeah. The process of getting there is this thing they like to call common sense at the time. Right. Right. That's the, that's that's Tom Paine's pamphlet that comes. Yeah. In. Yeah. What he's appealing to is that. If, if there's a truth and it's out there, right? So we're walking around in the dark and we know the elephant's in the room somewhere. Everyone that touches something and yells out, I think I found something is worth listening to. Yeah. Now, I, I don't feel that part, I feel this part, but we know it's there. And so I, I think to your point, we know the objective truth is there, but what matters 
in the American Republic at its founding was the idea that no one knew exactly what it was. Mm. That's why power worked by legislation, which is a rhetorical environment where you get and say, I think we should have this law, I think we should have that one. And we come to a law and we go, well, that's good for now, but next generation we're gonna debate this all over again because they're gonna know things we didn't. Mm -hmm. So what, what, what happened in the Zenger case, and I don't know if you're getting a lot of detail, but, but as a printer, Zenger had been taken to court because British law, and I think this is relevant to what you just said in the intro, what Zenger was taken to court over was he had published for a newspaper, the New York Weekly, some news about the governor, Cosby at the time, about the governor that hurt his reputation. Right. And he was thrown in jail for saying something that hurt the reputation of a governing official. Right. The problem was it was true. Right. Right. But in English law, if you say something that, that disturbs the civic order, yeah. if you say something that disturbs the civic peace, then that's called the danger. And what American jury decided, oddly enough, and there was no law for it, was the, the thing about Zenger was not who he hurt, he actually spoke truth. Mm. And therefore we're getting close, even if, it's, even if it's counterproductive and it feels like it hurts people and creates some social chaos, it's getting us closer to this thing called truth. Mm. So I, I think you're right, what, you, what you've now brought up is that in the framework as it changed now, we don't have that respect for reason. Because we're, we're, we're having this conversation in the post-postmodern era, right, 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 where right. objective truth is right. challenged. In fact, uh, you know, there are plenty of people today challenging the Enlightenment. Right? I mean, the Enlightenment is being thrown out. Oh, you know, yeah. it, it, so, you know, it's fascinating that the secularists are now at war with the Enlightenment, right? right? right. So, but what I'm hearing from you, and I think it's an important point to bring out, is in the Republic, you, you, it, it's founding, you have truth. It exists. It's objective, right, right. and we can get to it right. through reason and That's a process. Right. But what it seems like is what the, what the American Republic was most concerned about was the process by which That's we right. get to the That's to right. truth. You protect the process. That's right. You never chintz on the process. Right. You defend it with your life. That's right. And the reason why, Mark, was exactly the same case, I think. Which is, if freedom is, if, if the truth is out there, then only through free discourse can we arrive there. Mm. Anybody that comes in and says, I know what's right and cuts off free discourse keeps you from the truth. Right. So you become the exact opposite, which is why, by the way, why the early America through the 19th century were terrified of Catholics primarily. is because Catholics were getting their truth from a, from a hierarchy and a structure yes. that was already true. Yes. And so the Catholic doesn't have to think about it. The Catholic just obeys. It's, that's not true, but that was the perception, yes, right? Yes. They just obey. And so for a well, Catholic... Well, even in 1960, that was well, the argument why you don't vote for Kennedy. That's right, right. <laughs> right? He's going to take no, his rules from the Pope. That's right. Yeah. And, that, and that's not... I think people can think that's a little, um, I don't know, um, a little boogeyman-ish sort of thing. But, yeah. but I think you have to get underneath that to see the general faith in America, that truth is something you said it right. Truth is something that you have to use the process to get to, reasoning, debate, disagreement. So why Protestantism is, a, is an ideal vehicle for that. Well, we and maybe agree. that's part of it, too, is that one of the reasons this works in a Protestant republic mm -hmm. is that in many ways the Protestant Reformation can be seen as someone like Luther yeah. using his freedom of speech, right. his freedom of conscience. That's right. and, and I'm actually almost channeling pastors from the 19th century <laughs> at this point because these are part of the sermons oh, yeah. that, you know, that this is a model of it. That's right. Right. Now, of course, they never talked about Luther not letting the Anabaptists speak, but that's a different story, right? But casting but, all peasants in the house. Exactly. But but there was. You're right. You're right. There's something about it's not just our political heritage, but our religious heritage yeah. is tied to freedom of conscience and freedom of being able to speak right. truth. That's right. Not falsity, but truth. truth. Right. And and the and the point is is that it itself is not the the absolute value. 
You said it right. It's the process by which we arrive at the absolute value. So yeah. no one protected free speech for free speech's sake. But should the tyrant tell you for the sake of whatever good, yeah. you can't talk like that, even well-intentioned, yeah. that person would cut off every avenue we have to arriving at the truth, civically, morally, politically, right. economically. Right. Um, now, that, now that context does change a little bit, but you, you mentioned this before, that Europeans, even at the time, and I think you brought up Tocqueville, who looks at this, recognizes yeah. from the European context, something's weird about how the Americans look at this. Yes, yes. And so Alex de Tocqueville, who uh, comes to the United States around the 1830s, uh, he's a French politician, political scientist. He wants to study this new thing, right? This American Republic and, and how it works and, and why it works. It's really strange. Um, it's not a it is. European it, model. It's, it is. And, and particularly, I think, if you look at the year he's born, he's born around 1805. So he's born in the middle of the yeah. Napoleonic Wars. Okay. Where, and afterwards, democracy kind of gets a bad rap. Uh, in, in, there's this reaction against sure. democracy, in, even in England with people like Burke. But de Tocqueville is here and he's studying it. And one of the things, he, he writes this great book called Democracy in America. Uh, which is still worth reading yeah, today. Really. Uh, it was. It you might was, need the abridged version if you don't have a lot of time. Well, make the but time. But read it. Okay, make, make the, the time. time. Yeah, yeah. And and he there's an entire chapter in that book on freedom of the press, hmm. uh, and I think that's as close as we get to de Tocqueville's understanding of what freedom of expression, freedom of speech hmm. looks like hmm. in America. And and but what he I actually want to read this because I think you almost have to to get put it in his words. Um, he he's so opposed to any type of censorship. Mm. And he says this, that in a country, some of the United States, in a country where the dogma of the sovereignty of the people mm. reigns openly, censorship is not only a danger, but also an absurdity. Mm. Mm. When one accords to a right, uh, records to each a right to govern the society, one must surely recognize his capacity to choose among the different opinions. So if you're gonna give the power to the people, mm. You have to also give them the power to use their reason and wisdom to sort out various competing ideas. Um, and so what he would say is that this ability to choose what different opinions that agitate his contemporaries and to appreciate different facts, the knowledge of which can guide him. And then he says this, the sovereignty of the people and freedom of the press are therefore two entirely correlative things. Censorship and, uni and universal suffrage are not contrary they are two things, they are not two things that contradict each other, rather they support each other. Mm. And so, and I think as we process where we are today, and, and we have people who attack the press, yeah. um, and of course the press is saying, we're, we're you know, the fourth estate, we're here to protect <laughs> democracy. Um, and then, but today I think, and then he also goes on to say in America, what kind of balances this out? is that what he noticed when he was in American 1830s is that there were newspapers everywhere. And we talk about this in our classes, yeah, right? Yeah. They, technologically, it's much cheaper to produce periodicals at this point because right. of technology right. changes. So there are periodicals everywhere, yeah. right? It, it's what makes doing 19th century research so easy. <laughs> yeah. and, and Google has scanned most of them. Yeah, so, right. <laughs> um, But anyway, so they're all over. America's a reading public. And he's saying by this, having these diversity of opinions out there, what it does is it, it prevents one opinion from dominating the conversation. Right. And what he kind of sees it as almost a democratization of right. conversation. Right. But today, I wonder <laughs> what's going on because yeah. we seem to have more resources than they did in the 1830s as far yeah. as information outlets. Yet, 
we can agree that there's this safe space in the public square. And maybe part of the problem is we don't have, there's a public square that gets created in the 1830s in the periodical world because I produce a periodical, you choose to read it, you read it, you throw it out, you use it for firewood, you use it to keep yourself warm, whatever. Where our public square today is actually in a private place. Our public square has become social media, which is not public. It's actually Mark Zuckerberg's basement, (laughs) as it were, or Twitter's basement. And so does that limit this possibility of free speech? And is that creating some of the problems there? So, uh, but it's an interesting dynamic when he looks at us in the 1830s and says, you have to allow people to make these decisions and sort through this. And also, the more conversation, the better. You've always said that, that this idea in the republic, the more voices we bring, the better. But now it seems like we have more voices than we know what to do with. Yet what we're doing is we're hiving ourselves off and saying it's almost the opposite of what he – so maybe he was wrong or he was (laughs) idealistic. Maybe the reality is we only read the periodicals we like. Yeah, that's right. And maybe there's a lot of them, but we actually only read the two that we really like. Yeah, yeah. And we don't read the other ones. Yeah, that's right. And maybe yeah, that's... I think that's a good point, because I think what... So let me add one more thing into that context, as you've been mentioning it, the, the, post, the post-French revolutionary fear of radical democracy. So what Robespierre does in Paris, for example, for the benefit of the people, he knows what's best for the people. The people can know... And he, like he says, you've got multiple voices. When one voice speaks for the best of the people, call him Robespierre, call him Pericles, call him Hitler, call him whatever, that person sooner or later is going to wield the power of the state against any danger, right? Right. Because they know what's best, they know what's right, and the people are just ignorant. And we trust that the people know or ought to know, then we're willing to put contradictory information out and let the people figure it out. Right. And to your point, I don't know if I'm going to talk you off the ledge so much, is I think from one, maybe this is where it's complicated, Mm -hmm. from one perspective, think of the people that read across the media, right? Read left, right, read all these, you know, Washington Post, Washington Times, but read them all. Um, You actually get exactly, I think, what Tocqueville's was talking about. The problem is we actually get many Robespierre's out of this um, because in the tribal environment, if you're only listening to CNN or only Fox or only whatever, you're actually, we've got large enough, I mean, I mean, critical masses of population who are in fact falling under the, um, you know, the, the convincing words of a single rhetorocrat. Yes. Right? I mean, it's a, yes. it's a rhetorocrat. They, they are controlling the people through their ideas. And you know this too, because you know the people that are, with everything available, who read one news story or news source, they almost can't go on. They, they've got only one narrow view of the world and it's all falling apart. They live in fear. And, of course, the only person that can save them is the CNN correspondent, the Fox correspondent that can explain to them why this is happening, why they live in terror. So instead of having a nation that's really taking advantage of the breadth of information, we're actually creating the problem that the Tocqueville wanted to avoid, I think the founders did. We're just using it with the very information that should breed the opposite. Yes. Humility and open awareness and public debate. So I guess the question is, is the digital media environment necessarily tribalizing so that it just yeah. makes free speech impossible right. in that regard. Or at least I shouldn't say it makes possible. Steals the real value it provides for a republic. Is, is, is it impossible now, Mark? And maybe it's this. He says something in here that the reason in the 1830s that a peri- this plethora of periodicals can exist is because uh, Americans consumed it and therefore you could only, you, you didn't have to sell a lot to basically right. cover your costs. Right. right. And so the, the, the reason to sell your periodicals was for your ideas. 
Okay, and he even goes into you know, kind of complains in France. There's too many advertisements in their periodicals, right? <laughs> Weird. Yeah, but <laughs> if, if you look at us today, and if I'm getting my if my public square is Facebook or Twitter, and that's my periodical, the difference between the 1830s and maybe the 2030s mm-hmm. or the night the 2020s is this that. I have to go in the 1830s and purchase these mm. periodicals, mm. right? Yeah, good point. The difference, though, is now once I get into social media and I click on, you know, French Democracy Today, the algorithm is going to keep sending me more Tribalized of that because their goal is not to provide information and opinion. Their mm. idea is to sell my data yeah. <laughs> to people who want to sell me stuff. Right. So, so even the mechanism by which we're doing this conversation mm-hmm. has changed. And, and this is where the big challenge is, mm-hmm. right? Like this is where people are, there's a crisis. You hear in the New York Times recently, there was an article. Uh, we can actually link to this interview with this uh, woman who wrote this article. This is in the New Yorker where she said, oh, do we now need, actually need the government to come in and regulate mm-hmm. Uh, free speech mm. because we can't rely on what de Tocqueville's saying. I mean, mm. she's, she's, and she, she goes into this a little bit, which that sounds scary. You know, that, that gets to my tyranny fear, right? right? right, right. Uh, but, but it has the, has the ground actually, what de Tocqueville said is true. If we're purchasing periodicals, yeah. we agree there's objective truth. And we're trying to get at it, and eventually we will, even right. with a thousand different periodicals. Right. Where today we have, we don't believe there's objective truth right. in our culture. Or we we might believe there are some objective truths. Yeah, yeah. Uh, ours. Objective emotions. And, and yeah, objective <laughs> feelings and emotions and experiences. That's fair. And and so and then also where we're doing the consumption, the public square is actually a private space yeah, that's yeah. really there to get me to buy other stuff. Right. You know, they're really right. there to get me to buy a new pair of sneakers, not right. this argument. Well, what, it's interesting what you've just said there, though, I think, is you've, you've pointed out a, a place where a convergence of two things are happening. And maybe that's where this becomes even, even, even exponentially worse or, or more problematic. And that is ha- the, the mechanism by which we get our media, right, is yeah. new, right? And you're yeah. right. It's now targeted. It's tribalized. But then also this idea that in the intellectual elites, culture leaders, it, it's not only that, right, few objectives, truths, but there's no trust in human reason anymore. There you go. And I, and I think if there's no trust in human reason, then I can't, like, I think if you go back to the Enlightenment, and this is what Lyman Beach, where I wrote my dissertation, I was very anti-Catholic, labeled as one of the worst anti-Catholics. If you actually read his famous sermon, 1834, Plea for the West, um, where he's, he goes on an anti-Catholic diatribe, what he says in the middle of it is, I want Catholics to speak out in public. Yeah. I want them to write their journals. I want them to talk because once you do and it comes into the environment of free debate, yeah. we'll win because it's true. And yeah. he even trusted the Catholic to be reasonable. What he didn't want was state support for a Catholicism or something that would insulate it. Right? But I think, I think what's happened now is we don't have that trust that human reason functions. So it, it comes down to a core set of convictions. And I think this is our discussion on critical theory, which maybe go back and listen to or, or, or um, just engage with again because... The idea is every word that comes from you belongs to a core conviction, and that core conviction defines everything about what you say. So if I know you're a hater, for however I define that, all of your words become unreliable. Right. That, that is really not at all true of the Enlightenment, where even the radical outsider needed yeah. to be heard because the truth would prevail. Yeah. And, and human reason would always win out. It's just you need to hear the better argument. 
Um, if we lose that, which we've lost that, and this is where another view in free speech comes, free speech is now the way of shutting down people with bad convictions or bad character yeah. so that only good character can be heard. That's why we cancel certain people. Right. Because freedom now means the ability to hear the right people instead yes. of the wrong people. Right. And you converge that with this other stuff. Right, right. <laughs> yes. What a toxic combination. Yeah. And that, so that's, so uh, you put me back on the ledge. Sorry. Uh, yeah, I, yeah, had, yeah, I thought yeah, I had you had you yeah, me off the ledge, but I'm back on the ledge because, what, because what you, what I think the, the reality is we have to, we have to read those original documents from the Republic. We have to read to Tocqueville and realize they're in a very different context. Yeah. Um, you know, it'd be very interesting for De Tocqueville to jump in a time machine, you know, yeah, right. come to 2020 and say, do you think you want to do a revised edition? <laughs> right. Yeah, and, yeah and it's actually based on the last election. Do you right. really think this right. is working? Right. And um, but what's what scares me a little bit is I'm actually hearing people say, particularly in light of everything our culture is experiencing right now, is is the republic over? Yeah. You know, I've had people actually not in a jest say, I have a really bad feeling about the republic. Now, granted, I think there's some truth to that Americans have a paranoid style of politics. Right, right, right. You know, I, so I, Hofstetter's I, right. Hofstetter is yeah. not all wrong. No, exactly. No, no, no. But there are some differences in 2020 that we've never had to experience yeah. before. Yeah. Uh, that are very unique in the history of humanity. Yeah. You know, the 24-hour news cycle, the way we get information, yeah. that kind of thing. No society's ever had to negotiate that. That's true. Yeah. Um, and and on top of it, and, and this is this is for those of us that we live in the arts and sciences and the humanities, when we reduce the humanities courses in our programs, <laughs> right. and, and people lose that ability to, right. you know, we 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 joke we we kind of say you know if you're if you're in the humanities program you should hear at least one thing in the course of your time that offends you yeah and if we yeah. didn't we haven't done our job yeah, that's right. um but now we're so concerned about offending that's people right. we don't want to expose them to ideas that are difficult to yeah. wrestle with and and we can do it from the right or the left yeah, that's it's right. not a it's not a, a, a neutral thing yeah, that's right um, but I, 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 but we, but I think what we have to think about is this: free speech is important to the republic. Yeah. It's still important to the republic, even in this environment. Do you think? Is it salvageable? That that just educating the public that we need to do. What's yeah, it? that's that's. Uh, you know, historians make the worst prophets. I know. So <laughs> you're asking me to prophesy, yeah. and uh, uh, you know, in my heart of hearts. I, I hope that's the case. Yeah. I hope we can salvage this. I hope we can look back on this in 20 years from now and say that was a moment. Yeah, right. Um, or, you know, because, but then again, as historians, what do we do? How do we understand the present? It's what this whole podcast is about, yeah, right? right? We're looking at the past to try to make sense of the future. Right. And we've seen other republics fail for yeah, similar yeah. problems. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, this is this would not be the first. I think I think every republic. My my favorite example of a republic collapsing like this would be say Renaissance Florence, yeah. who you know has wealth and opportunity, but of course some rhetorical leaders that decided to rally the the Florentine people around certain certain values that ended up weakening it politically, socially, morally until it collapses in a yes. heap around Savonarola and um, and Lorenzo de Medici. But and, and that's just that's one little northern Italian example where I think you see it happen in others. And I, and I guess the question is, can it be avoided? We like the we like this, you know, uh, progression of republics argument. Every republic starts off strong, moral character, yeah. becomes overwhelmed with its own luxury, infights, collapses. Nothing's 
No one's killed a Republican. They all die from suicide. Right. right. That's Abraham Lincoln. Nothing right. can kill our Republic right. except from within. Right, right. So we see it happening again. And so, yeah, what's it like? And I'll, I'll, I'm going to agree with you there. And I think that um, it could be one of these. And I don't know if this is right, Mark, but I would hazard a guess and say, I don't know if free speech is working, but if it dies, the Republic dies. Hmm. Like I, I don't, I, I think you're, I think you're right. Given all the things you've explained, my my guess is free speech is you're right, not functioning. And I don't know. I agreed with you when the conversation started, but I think I do agree with you now that. that but if it's not function, it's it's it it, it uh, maybe it's functioning, but it's it's functioning in a flawed way. It, yeah, it's right, right. It's not working the way it sh- it's spo- it was supposed to ensure and protect certain things. It's not accomplishing that anymore. Yeah. But I guess I guess to be to be somewhat mildly loyal to the cause, I think if it goes, the republic becomes impossible. And I, and I think to learn the lessons of the ancients, that when when they use the power of rhetoric and the power of the press, the power of the military to produce one opinion, the culture of that society then collapses in war, civil war, something else, right? Yeah, Just, yeah. So we can't let it go. Now the, now the question comes down to this, Dr. Draper, in my opinion. Given all of this to navigate, we've got to na- navigate as Christians on top of that. Yes. Being tolerant, kind, caring, listening. H- how do we, is it, d- should free speech be a virtue that a Christian ought to fight to uphold? Hmm. I, I feel, I would say, I think our Christianity can be stronger hmm. when we are exposed to other ideas hmm. and we have the theological and intellectual toolkit to wrestle with them. Um, I I just had this conversation with some of our students that said that, you know, part of going to college is to be exposed to different ideas. I said, but here's the difference, you know, teaching in a Christian school. It's not just to expose you to ideas. And it's not to tell you what to think necessarily, but it's to prepare you, the student, with the tools so that you can make Christianly evaluations of these things. Because one of the things is we can just say, okay, free speech doesn't work for a Christian and, and just we're done, right? But I always feel that particularly in, in, in Christian higher ed, mm. where we both live, our job in some ways is to prepare young people and seminarians and so forth for, th- for issues that are going to emerge 20 years from now that we can't imagine. Right. And they're going to have to act like a jazz musician mm. and do some improvisation. Mm. But it's a skill set. Right. It's it's not a set of information, and it's not mimicking. Right. You can't mimic your way through it. That's right. You have to be able to improvise and and negotiate right. and pull on your your Bible education, the offensive things I learned in the liberal arts. <laughs> you know, my my right. other part. We got to pull on all of these things, and, and so I think it can actually help you. And I think we've seen times where Christians try to almost be Christ against culture mm. and just keep out anything they didn't agree with. And what that does is once sometimes when someone does get exposed to something, they don't know how to handle it. Right. Um, so freedom of speech as the republic, there's a virtue to that. Yeah. But as a Christian, I don't think we should be afraid of ideas, mm. particularly if we believe we are worshiping the truth. Yeah, that's right. Um, but I mean, isn't it, but it's a cultural problem for evangelicals because we're afraid of wrong ideas. We're afraid of bad ideas. Yeah. In. And then, Christians have been the ones oft times, I think, of, you know, Puritan uh, New England hanging Baptists, you know. Yeah, um, or drowning witches. Or drowning witches, right. Not always been the most tolerant group in the world. That oft times the, the, the church, Western church, churches, Christians, let's just say it that way, can oft times be the worst abusers there. Um, 
But at the same time, if I think you're right that that there's been this shift in my life because I came out of what was a sort of fundamentalist community, yeah. that a lot of Christians are actually starting to say, "Wait, a minute, I think I want to have more faith. The Holy Spirit's going to work us through this." Yeah. And we can't close ourselves off to the culture. We're going to have to open ourselves up to that conversation. And and I would almost say it this way, Mark. I don't know if this is fair, so I'll bounce it off of you. There's this there's this theory in epistemology called live as if, right? Mm-hmm. So if I don't know if it's true, but I'm going to live live as if it's true. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if as Christians we we can't assume that people are going to act rationally given sin, given all sorts of things. We have to act as if they will. Mm-hmm. I, what I mean by that is I, I think if I, if I meet someone who's non-Christian, I could say, look, your, your reason is all bent around by sin. Mine is too, but I'm addressing it um, you know, through repentance. You're not. But I can't treat that person as a hostile witness. I can't treat that person right. like they're irrational. I, I need to treat them as if because, to your point, we believe the Holy Spirit will work through and around these things. Yeah. So if that's the case, I wonder, I wonder if free speech is something that we commit to, the idea of a free environment where objective truth and reason is all working. Yeah. We commit to that, um, even if the world doesn't agree with us. Yeah, and, and, and the other piece, too, is I, I think that while we, we should be exposed to various ideas, that doesn't mean I'm going to go everywhere. Yeah. You know, there, there, that doesn't mean I'm going to say, you know what, I really need to see this R-rated movie right. because I need to be exposed right. to gratuitous sex right. in order to make a wise, wise decision, decision. Right. right? I mean, so so there are sort All of... All truth is going to... Yeah, you, you, yeah, right. And, <laughs> and so uh, we do have to draw some of that. It's like, you know, okay, I, I hear, but I don't really need yeah. to hear that. I know what that's... You know, I read the review. I know, I know what that's right. doing, and, and that's not where I'm going. Um, but uh, but that doesn't mean you know I'm not going to read Karl Marx. Right. You know, it doesn't mean that I'm not going to go to this art exhibit. I, I'm right. not going to have this conversation with this person who I vehemently disagree with their right. politics and right. lifestyle. Right. Uh, and I'm going to do it in a winsome posture way. Um, so I think the free speech, that ability to have that conversation is helpful. Yeah. Um, and I think, too, Dan, it's hard for us to, you and I sitting here in 2020, to even fathom not having it. I would almost yeah. prefer you ask that question to someone who was a Christian in Soviet That's Russia. Right. Yeah. right? I'd, I'd, or, or I'd like to hear uh, a Chinese brother and sister who's in the underground church answer that question. Right. I, I don't feel almost equipped yeah. to answer that question because I don't know what it's like on the other side. Yeah, and, you know, it'd be very interesting to hear a brother and sister who was in Soviet Russia say, oh, no, you want this. This, right. is, this is better. Right. Right? It's right. got it. It's it's uh, it, it's similar to there's a quote that's attributed to Churchill that says democracy <laughs> is the worst form of government except for the Several. other ones. Right. right. Yeah. And and so um, which, you know, Churchill's so quotable. Right. And. So I wonder if, 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 if a brother from brother and sister yeah. from the Soviet Union might say something like that. Yeah. That yeah, it has its problems. Yeah. But let me tell you about the gulags. You know, <laughs> yeah. and see how that goes. And Solzhenitsin and, is very and, important. And, and you know, here. maybe that's it, Dan. And maybe that's Schult- Solzhenitsyn has given us the guide is that live not by lies. Yeah, that, uh, that new book that's yeah. out with Roger. But I mean that statement, live not by lies. So I can hear free speech, I can have dialogue, but I'm not gonna live by lies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's important because I think, I think when a Christian says we're concerned about free speech, you've heard it traditionally on all sorts of ways, right? We don't want people influenced by the wrong thing. So, and you're right, we do have to draw lines there. And then I think this, this idea that um, at this point in time, somehow, um, we're not going to create an environment where free speech is actually productive, right? Because 
the loudest voices now are no longer generally Christian voices. They're right. now secular right. voices. Right. They're informed right. by all sorts of other things. Um, so we might not trust that it's actually going to produce anything. Right. And I, and I think here's where, yeah, some of that sobriety comes in. Um, and, and I think even, even if it's not going to produce something directly, I can't tell whether it will. It's a preferable environment, number one. Yeah. Um, number two, it does provide for the most open dialogue with our culture. Right. And we don't right. even have to take a Neborian position on that. No, Let's, let's no. be above, let's be in paradox. Yeah, any no, one of no. these, unless you're fully against, yeah. any one of those paradigms, you still need some open dialogue with culture. Um, but I, I want to go back to something you said in this, and I think it's really important, and I, I do this with my students all the time. To your point about reading and what to read, Everything is legal for me, but not everything is healthy. I think this yeah. Pauline discussion around yeah. Yeah. food sacrificed idols. And the image I use with my students often is the idea of the kite. I want that kite, the freedom to go anywhere on the horizon it can go. But the string better be anchored in Christ. Yeah. Because if that's not anchored, it's not flying anymore, it's tumbling. And I think what actually happens with Christians, and I, my, my faith in the Bible college mark has gone up exponentially in the last yeah. decade. Yeah is that we are actually exhibiting a sober freedom in investigating these things because we know where truth is. And so I can go into Marx and I can actually learn things from him yep. because I'm anchored in the truth over here, right? Yep. If we do one or the other, we either tie the pipe right to the right to the stake. Yeah, yeah. Then it doesn't fly, it's sort of dangling. Right, but if we right. disconnect it from the, it doesn't fly at all, right? right it just falls right, down. Right. So I think there, you're right. I think the, It's what we're anchored to as we're doing the right. exploration. And so freedom of speech is nice it gives me the ability to explore other ideas and discover all truth is God's right. truth. Right. You know, like, you know, you know, I was, you know, even a blind squirrel can find a nut <laughs> once in a while. <laughs> right. And so, you know, not everything Mark said was a hundred percent wrong. Right. Uh, so I can, I can, I can hear some of that, but if I, if you shut it off, usually what happens in cultures is when you shut off free speech, you're also going to shut off my ability to read scripture. Yeah, no, that's right. That's I right. mean, they, they generally... Tend to go hand in hand. And, and, you know, and this is something we need to think about. I mean, why did the founders put such a premium on this? They were responding to what yeah. they thought was a restriction of free speech in England. I mean, yeah. we must remember, those of us Protestants who are sola scriptura Protestants, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, who have our Bible published by Tyndale Press. Right, yeah, that Tyndale right. was burned at the stake right, right. for uh, for uh, bringing in literature yeah. vis-a-vis the Bible into England that was considered seditious. So, you know, that my, my Protestant sensibilities come out yeah, in this as yeah. well. And, and so that's why I do hope we can figure out how to maintain yeah. this because yeah. I see this as a, as a kingdom virtue. Right. That, and that's the point, Mark, and I, I think that's where this podcast for me is so life-giving, is that while we can ask the question about the republic, and that's an important because we live in a republic, and actually there's a lot of benefits to come from it. Your, your comparison to the gulag is apt, right? Yeah. We, we, we have every reason to protect the republic because when republics fail, the other models aren't very promising. It's right? usually like, some form of tyranny. Right, and, and those don't go well, historically speaking, no. right? But ultimately, even if that doesn't go right, we have this loyalty to a kingdom which requires us to be loving and kind and open and also has, the, and this is something else to liberal education which I've found, is that it, it, it teaches a humility. It's like built into the cake. It's baked in that I know I don't know. And that's why I'm not afraid to read you know, Nietzsche because he's going to teach me things I didn't know. Yeah. He's going he's to challenge me in ways. But that's a humility on my part that is not this anchor from Christ. In right. fact, it's very much anchored to it. So I think you're right. If we even think of this in the terms of the kingdom ethic, which is what we ultimately did come back to, so thanks for the reminder, 
if the Republic fails, I'm okay still on the ledge because my kingdom hasn't failed. Exactly. And my kingdom of King Christ still teaches me that whatsoever is good, true, and noble, and beautiful, as Paul says in Philippians, yeah. I have the right to pursue and yeah. ought to, Yeah. right, in humility. And, and, and we should not, do, to go back to Salt and Eason, I should not live by lies in a Republic or in a dictatorship. Yeah. yeah. So, and so in, ma- in many ways, it's it's... Maybe it's a little easier to say which lies I'm not going to accept in a, in a tyrannical government. Right. Where in a free speech republic, I really have to do some evaluative work to find out where the lies are. That's right. Because it's all out there. That's right. Uh, where it's easy if it's like, well, I'm just not going to believe it if it comes from the Kremlin right. and the national. Right. <laughs> That's, That's easy. Right. You know, I'll believe uh, America free radio, but I'm not <laughs> going to believe this. OK. But but in this. And this really, this maybe moves us into our last piece here is how do we negotiate this, right? Mm -hmm. Because we do live in a republic where there is free speech. There is more information being bombarded at us. And and as I said, some of it for sinister purposes. It's really to sell you stuff. Um, How do we then, Dr. Spenger, negotiate this? How do we prepare ourselves to be anchored, to be the proper kite? Yeah, I think that's great. And I think think one of the things we have to do is we have to reject the critical theory model that the statements and beliefs of everyone are tied to some singular moral characteristic, right? Yeah. I mean, of all people, Christians understand that morality is a, is a heart issue in the fall. And it's we, complicated. And it's complicated, right? <laughs> we can be the first to easily reject everything that doesn't come from a Christian's mouth. Yeah. Um, but then Christians err too. So the, the right, I think the wrong way to negotiate this is to accept the critical theory model that the public space has got to be controlled by people who are good, because we know full well that ain't going to happen. Right? And and it's a, and also too, who's making the determination of what good is? Right, exactly, exactly. Yeah. There's sin in all of us, right? So I think we reject that. On the on the other hand, uh, you're right. We can't be uncritical. And I, I I I've said this before, and this is my biggest challenge to myself, is that if if we plan, and here's the, here's the other side, I think we can fall off. If we plan to study everything and hope the truth materialize won't happen, I I say this to students all the time. It's something I've come to the conclusion after years of study. No one has come to the truth by accumulating facts. No one's read so many facts and go, oh, now I know it's true. Mm. Facts are what you align when you know the truth. Mm-hmm. Now that I know it's truth is how I attack my facts. And I think for Christians, we can't fall under the enlightenment lie that if there's enough openness and availability, all we need to do is pursue and we'll find it. Yeah, right. I think really the balance there is when we see Jesus, and I did this in a recent chapel out of Second Peter chapter 1, that what Peter calls in Second Peter chapter 1 verse 16, he talks about human myths. He differentiated those because several verses later, 18, he talks about seeing the transfiguration. Hmm. And here's the beautiful thing. Once he saw Christ for who he was, those things became human myths. Hmm. And, I, and I think the beauty is for us is that we, as much time as we, if we want to do it this way, Mark, maybe we do it this way and create a calculation. Yeah. For every minute that we read anything else, there's a minute spent in the scriptures and the traditions of the church. Hmm. So that we have as equally clear a picture, a more clear picture of who Christ is. In so truth. it's kind of like weightlifting. I do a leg day right. and an arm yeah, day, there you go. There you so go. I don't look odd. You don't look odd. Right? I don't want to. Yeah, right, balance, right, yeah. But, but I think once you have, once you once you know Christ, I think this is always the challenge. Then we know what we're learning in the upset. That's the anchor and the kite thing. Maybe is that is that? No, I think that makes a lot of sense. That we we we, we really do have to train i'm going to use that that's weightlifting right. no, I think that's exactly right. analogy we do need to train to classical. be christians living in a republic where there is a lot of free speech right. this, differently than how we would have to train if we were in the gulag right. uh, but it's there's still training still involved training, yeah. and and the and, and to further complicate things we also now live in a time period where we have to train to understand the modalities by which we are getting yeah, the information 
to go to your early point, there's mechanisms here. Exactly. It's yeah, not neutral. It's it's what our our colleague uh, Joe Kim says. Uh, technology is never ethically neutral. Right, right, right. Right. And so, and and you can. I mean, a newspaper is a technology. The printing press is. Tech, right. So you always have to have that. But now it seems even more complicated because, and I think this is the big difference between, say, de Tocqueville's time and our time. To get information in de Tocqueville's time, I had to go get it. Yeah. Now it pings in my pocket. <laughs> it comes and gets you. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah. That's a very, yeah. that's a different yeah. animal. Like, you know, it's, it's work. We're, we're recording this in the library, right? In order to get this information, you must come to a source yeah. to get it. We're doing everything in our possibility to entice you yeah. to walk get in. in. Yeah. But it's not as if you send me an email and say, Mark, all my students are doing a paper on the Civil War, and I all of a sudden start sending them texts of books they should be reading. Right. Yeah. right? That's yeah. not happening. All one-sided. Right? Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But unfortunately, that's how sometimes the algorithms work when I get yeah. my news. Yeah. And I'm not even asking for it. Right. And Well, you're talking about discernment, Dr. Draper, yeah. and, and wisdom. And I, I want to I return to that because I think... One thing that's come out of our conversations about this is that living in the kingdom is hard. Yeah. And, and I, like, I love your idea of training. I think that's right. And I think if I were to go back to the classics, what the Greeks understood philosophically was that wisdom is the, is the result of virtues and habits, and you yeah. have to build them in. I think we don't want that. If I would say free speech was working at its best, it would be people that had the self-discipline to build in habits of discernment, patience, mm. kindness, mm. you know. We're not um, doing the heavy lifting yeah. to have the, the, the benefits of it. Right. And the, you know, the thing about critical thinking, we all use that term, that's done without discipline. That's just done, I don't like becomes the start of my logic, rather mm. than I've, I've spent time thinking through and I've, I've developed patience and self-control enough to listen long enough to figure it out. And I, So I like your idea of training. I think that ought to be the visual people take away from this. Take, if we're going to use free speech wisely... We need to take time to exercise. As Lingdin said, the, the suffering muscles. Yeah, 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 yeah. We need information discernment yeah, muscles. Yeah, we need wisdom muscles. Yeah, and that means, yeah. that means maybe meditation and prayer and thoughtfulness and reading the classics and yeah. reading scripture above all um, and prayer. I, I mean, go back and I think even understanding better how information is being discerned and transmitted. Yeah. Uh, it's very easy to, to lose that. Right, so. right. Well, I think we nailed it. Conversation, Doctor. We did. We got it. We got it. We saved. We saved it. That's good. Good. That was good. That was good. That was good conversation. Like that.